Good morning again. Before I get into my sermon, can I just, I don't know, use you all as therapists for a minute? Let me tell you about my last 16 hours. We had the grandkids over last night, which was great. They haven't spent Saturday night at our house in a couple years. And uh, my, my, my daughter's up in Michigan and uh, spending some time with her sisters. And it uh, started off great. We knew, hey, let's get all these kids bath, baths and get uh, all their clothes in the, in the wash and everything like that. Um, oldest one went, took a shower and one shower. I'm getting the youngest two uh, a bath, a little two, three and five. And uh, little guy hates to get, he won't put his head back in the tub. So I have to get a cup and pour it over his head to wash his hair. And as I reached for the shampoo, his sister says, I got the water for you, Grandpa, and picks up this, it's like a 32-ounce cup, and sets it on the edge of the tub, and then proceeds to dump it over, like, you know, on me and the floor and everything, and broke the cup. It was a plastic cup, but it broke, and, and, I'm, and then he's screaming, and everything's going crazy, and uh, just trying to get through that. Get them done, uh, get them, you know, dried off and sent out, and uh, Kathy's getting them in pajamas and whatnot, and um, meanwhile, the 10-year-old comes in and goes to take a shower where they just took a bath, the 12-year-old is still getting out of the other one, and while all this is going on, right after he gets out of the tub and put in fresh clothes is when the 3-year-old decides to poop his pants. And grandma is trying to get him all arranged and uh, she's coming back to get a, 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 a fresh uh, like overnight pants thing and he goes and lays down on the floor in the bedroom and squishes and let's just say a mess happened. Okay, so then I'm in there trying to hold him to keep him from getting everywhere with it. She goes running to get some rubber gloves, grabs one of the rubber gloves out of the cupboard in the bathroom, and a candle holder made of glass comes out with the glove and shatters on the floor. She's eventually coming back, trying to get him I'm holding him, trying to clean up the floor. We're trying to get things together. The eight-year-old hears commotion, comes running into the room, and guess where she steps? I was like, am I in a Steve Martin movie? So we, we're getting everything taken care of. Finally, Kathy realizes... The 10-year-old is in the shower and can't get out because there's broken glass all over the floor. And she goes in there to sweep that up and the floor's still wet from the spill. And it's just, it was like, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. So then this morning, uh, got up, got everybody going. I'm halfway to church. I had left before Kathy. I've got two of the kids with me. I'm halfway here when I realize I've left my sermon back at home. So I call Kathy up and I say, are you still at the house? She's like, yeah. I'm like, great. Can you grab my sermon before you come? 
She's like, fine, I've got it. It's right here. I'm going to put it with my purse. But you see, she, when I called and rang the phone, she had been just going to get her flute and music to bring. So guess what she then forgot? So she gets here with all the kids and realized because she went to get my stuff that I forgot, now she's forgot her stuff. And we get here, we've got everybody in and going together, and um, some, some nice folks, uh, we're, everything was now settled, we're getting class going, and some nice folks came in the back door looking for help, um, and so I went to go with them to the gas station down the street to get them a gas card, which is something we do for the church, and the gas station down the street will no longer take credit cards for, for gas cards, so I end up having to go with them clear out to the bypass, or not the bypass, but uh, out on the expressway to the BP station so I could get them a card. And I just got back here at like 18 minutes after, just in time for church. So Kathy said to me this morning, does it feel like you've put in a full day's work already? I said, yes. Yes, it does. Anyway, thank you for the therapy session. Back on February 5th, I preached a sermon to you titled, Who's the Boss? Which was about our work ethic as Christians. That we needed to do our best because we were really working for God, not people. Today I'm going to preach you another sermon about work. But it's on a substantially different area of thought about that topic. Today we're going to be talk of, talking about having to do work at all and what that's all about, how it came to pass, and what we should be thinking about it. Back in 1998, I had an emergency appendectomy. 2 a.m. trip, 35 miles to the ER, going under the knife 45 minutes later. Yay, fun. No laparoscopy for me, baby. This was like four months before that became common practice in our area. Now it was the cut them open, leave a nice scar, send them home for a while type of deal. Didn't make one hill of beans difference to me, though, because I was under. I was out. What they were doing while I was out didn't matter. It was what came after that made the difference to me. Now, my wife says that I'm just a big baby. She had three C-sections, which did a whole lot more. But I was working a very physical job at the time, and having had the surgery, I was not fit for that duty. So they simply put me off on short-term disability for three weeks and sent me home. Now, I want to point out to you that just a few months earlier, I had finished up full-time college, 12 credit hours, while working a full-time job, while also doing a one-day-a-week internship. That, the, the, the internship and the college had just ended like two months earlier. So before that, my wife basically never saw me. And now I'm off work as well, and I'm home doing a whole lot of nothing. There was no internet, we didn't have cable TV, we lived out in the middle of nowhere. I was doing nothing for three weeks except driving my wife bonkers. 
because she wasn't used to having me there doing a whole lot of nothing. By the way, at that time we had a uh, uh, two, four, and seven-year-old, and they were all home because it was summertime. There was no school going on. So let me just say that that's probably the closest that we ever came to, well, Kathy said she'd never divorce me, but she just might kill me. I was sitting around the house griping about pretty much everything instead of doing what I should have been doing, which was working, because that's what people are made for. God made people to be doing work. I wasn't. My wife definitely was, even though she wasn't getting paid a salary for it. Many people make the mistake of thinking that work was a punishment, part of the fall of mankind. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he, that's God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. I completely understand when people think that that's how it is, that they believe that the entirety of the Garden of Eden was this blissful paradise, two people running around naked with pet lions and elephants, and not a care in the world other than to stay away from that one tree. Then comes the fall. And forever afterwards, all of a sudden we are cursed and have to be breaking our backs, slaving away to do work in order to get anything and be able to survive. Well, that's partly true, but it's partly false. Work in and of itself is not a part of the curse. Far from it. Work is something we were originally intended for. And we are are really bad at life when we don't have work to do. Look at anybody who is in the age where you should be working and they're not working. They have nothing to do. No good comes from that. You see, before the fall of mankind happened, after we read about Adam being placed in the garden for how long, nobody knows. But this is what we, were, we do know about Adam when he went into the garden, as opposed to when he and Eve got cast out of the garden. Turn one chapter back to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at 5 through 15. This is going through the creation story a little bit here, but when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, 
And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the in pleasant to the sight and good for food and by the way the hebrew word that is translated here tree would also mean bushes so any kind of uh, growth that provides food there the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and Onk stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And get this last verse. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It was his job. Think about that. Adam and Eve, well, Adam was put there and then Eve created there, but they didn't, exist in the garden to be just on permanent vacation. They were put there for work. But it wasn't yet a drudgery type of work. It wasn't hard work as in unpleasant and causing them to hurt like we are after a long day's toil in the hot sun or, or a hot or, for that matter, freezing factory. Or, well, you get the point. It was, however, work. They were there to keep the garden, to tend it. What did that entail? I don't know, other than the fact that there weren't yet weeds and thorns and thistles overrunning the place. They probably had to trim the plants, dig things, plant things, transplant things, dig around them and put in fertilizer. Where's that pet elephant again? It, along with worshiping God every day and in person, was what gave meaning to their lives, this work that God had given them. It is what they and we are designed for. In fact, not only was work not supposed to be a curse or something to dread, but it was intended for us as a blessing. Just as God is a creative being who works to produce things, so also are we who are made in his image. He is a creative being. He makes things. We were designed after him. We were designed to make things. In fact, we're going to have work of some sort to do in heaven. Work in heaven? You might be asking incredulously, isn't heaven where we're supposed to be going to enter into our eternal rest? Well, yes. 
In fact, almost all of Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about entering into God's rest. Referring back to the Psalms, and that is, it is a reference as being reserved for those who believe. Most theologians do in fact interpret this as being the kingdom of God, if not heaven itself. Not to mention that Revelation does indeed say that those of us who die in the Lord will be going to, quote, rest from our labors. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So if the kingdom is God's rest, which we are striving to enter into, and we are told that we will be able to rest from our labors when we die in the Lord, how can I be saying that there'll be work in heaven? Well, because it says that we will. In the English Standard Version, which I'm using, uh, Revelation 22.3 says to us, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. However, if you look up that same verse in the King James, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And it also says that in the NIV and the NASB, the New American Standard, his servants will serve him. This word that's translated differently in those two, uh, in those passages, one says worship, one says serve, it is latreo. And it is from the word latris, which means a menial hired worker. Its second definition is to minister to God, render religious homage, serve, do the service of a worshiper. We don't really know exactly what that means, but it definitely has the connotations that we will have duties to attend to when we're in heaven. What those are is up for debate. There's a lot of people have different thoughts on that. But it won't be eternal lying around on clouds playing harps. There are passages in Isaiah 65 which suggest that we'll be doing manual labor in heaven, the new earth, such as farming and building. Whether or not that's to be taken literal, we'll find out. How does that work in eternity? I don't know. What I do know is that it will not be like work that we do here on this earth. Partially because our efforts will not be in vain. We won't be working for people that don't appreciate us and abuse us. And it will not be a toil of labor. In fact, we will, as it says, rest from our toil. So how does that fit together? 
Well, because the work which we will be doing is very akin to the work which mankind was doing before the fall. It was work. It was labor. It was a duty we needed to perform, but it wasn't wearying toil. It wasn't fighting against how everything just keeps falling apart. It was the work we are created to be doing, having something productive to do. Let me just make something clear. I like going to the beach on a nice sunny 82 degree day as much as the next person. I mean, in fact, that's my favorite vacation. Go to the beach, lie around, sunglasses on, little shade tent, just enjoy myself, occasionally go out and play in the surf, reading a book, just soaking it all in. That's awesome. Do you know what happens? About three days into it, I get bored. I need something to do. Just laying around on the beach isn't enough after just a few days. It's a good rest. It's a good break. But there needs to be something. That is a vacation. A time to get away and rest our minds and our bodies for a while. It isn't meant to be life. Like I said, most people get pretty bored with doing a whole lot of nothing after just a short time. So the big question we all need to be asking ourselves is, how does this apply to me as a Christian today? What's the point of this sermon? How, what, how does this have any application to life. We are in the time of hard, difficult work after the fall and the curse. The work that we do doesn't last. Fix something at your house. In a few years, it's going to need attention again. Do something with your car. It's going to need attention again. Whatever it is, it has to be kept up because it keeps breaking down. Now, I understand people say, hey, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, I get that. It's a lot nicer if your work is something you really enjoy. It doesn't wear on you quite as much. But you know what? I like tinkering in my garage. I like going out there and working on engines and doing stuff like that. I have a good time while I'm doing it, usually, as long as it's going well and things don't break, like my knuckles. But after a day of working on stuff in the garage, guess what? I'm reaching for the ibuprofen because I'm sore and I'm going, oh, Jiminy Crickets. And I'm not enjoying that part. And I'm betting you're like that too. It doesn't matter if you enjoy it, it's still hard work to do hard work. Even sitting at a computer all day makes your hands, neck, back, and eyes sore. But we are commanded to be doing work. It isn't a choice. When we don't work and we aren't productive, and in this fallen world, if you're not being productive, then you are living off of the efforts of somebody else's productivity. 
Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Before I read this, I want to point out, I was having a discussion with somebody I know who had decided that communism was the best thing in the world and uh, that, that they shouldn't have to work. They also called themselves a Christian. And I told them about this verse, and you know what they said? That's not in the Bible. Really? Hmm. Better take a look. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is unwill or not willing to work, let him not eat. That's pretty clear. You don't work, you don't eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul's own practice went above and beyond the requirements of what his office had stated elsewhere in Scripture. It clearly stated in several places that someone who is preaching and teaching the gospel has that as their work. But he was also doing manual labor as a tent maker in order to set an example Paul even explicitly tells the new Christians that work being done by them is not just the only acceptable way for them to provide for themselves, but it's also for them to be able to benefit those who either don't have employment or perhaps they aren't able to earn, like the aged or the blind or the crippled. Ephesians 4.28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. People who are capable of doing work and refuse to who aren't actually doing anything productive 
as far as work, are actually detrimental to society. Not only are they not contributing while they are consuming, but they do what people generally tend to do, which was in that 2 Thessalonians passage. When we don't have something to occupy our hands and our minds, the first thing that happens is we create things to entertain ourselves. And the easiest way to entertain yourself is to become a gossip, a busybody, as it says there. Now, I want you to understand something. The internet is a fantabulous tool. It does so many awesome, cool things. Uh, there was a tool used on the internet this morning uh, to communicate with people who came here uh, who didn't speak a word of English, and it was just an amazing thing. You just press the button, talk, they get it in their language. They press the button, talk, I get it in my language. Awesome! There's really, really great stuff on the internet. I used it yesterday to learn how to reprogram my garage door opener. But spend five unwary minutes looking around on the internet, and you will see lots of people making a career out of not working, but instead speaking evil of others. God made us for work, doing something productive. Now, in their day and age, that virtually always meant physically manual labor. That doesn't necessarily mean so in our, ways, our days. There's lots of ways to be productive in our society today. God made us for it. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. We're, we're His work. We're what He made. And we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He has things waiting for us to do. Yes, in the time after the fall of mankind, work as we do it is more burdensome, even backbreaking. But we are made for doing work despite the fact that it is now more unpleasant than it was before. We as people <clears throat> were doing work from the beginning. That's what God put Adam in the garden to do. And we're going to be doing work of some sort in eternity in heaven. Don't know what that looks like, but it's some sort of duty that we perform. Work is good. Work is a blessing from God. And work is good for us. It is amazing how good it feels when you finish a job on something. Sometimes just because you're relieved that the job is finally done, you got frustrated because things didn't go right. But work is amazing when you finish something and you just stand back and you go, <clears throat> I did that. Work is what God 
made us to be doing? Did he make us to be doing it every day of our lives? No, we're supposed to have a day of rest every week. And there is plenty in there talking about when people get to a certain age that they're supposed to be able to rest from the hard work and hard labor. But God made us for work. It is not a curse. It is also not an option. We are commanded in more than one place that those who can work must work. We don't get to say, you know what, I just, I think somebody else should take care of me. It doesn't work like that. God made us for work. We are at our best when we work. And we do good for others through our work. Don't look at your work as a curse. I understand we talked about this when we talked about who's the boss. Sometimes you work for awful people, at least in how they treat you. Sometimes you work for people that are just difficult to get along with. Sometimes you work with people that they, they want to like make you do all the work and then they share in all the credit. And that's no fun. But that's a side issue. Work is what God gave for us to occupy us on this earth in preparation for the services that we will be doing for him in eternity. It's practice and it's good for us. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago every passage of scripture is theological but not every passage of scripture is Christological. Do I look at this passage and say oh this is you know this has to do with salvation? No not really but it does have to do with God's instruction for us as human beings created in his image and claiming his name. He says, be people who do work. Beyond that, he even says, who do good works. And that has a whole myriad of, of, of connotations to it. I don't know if you're still working or if you're retired or if you, you don't really think of what you do as work, but God gave it to us. Don't look at it as a curse. God gave it to us to be a blessing. Let's pray.